to Experiences of Insight. On today's episode, we are joined by Robert Scrove, owner of Dallas Design Sprints and the mastermind of the Global Virtual Design Sprint. Both Lee and I have been closely following his work over the past couple of years and are thrilled and grateful to have had a chance to sit with Robert and capture some of his thoughts and insights. Also to hear from him about his background in building communities and setting the stage for people to work together. Prior to his venture with Dallas Design Sprints, Robert was engaged as a user experience and information architect professional for a number of top tier organizations, including Singular, which is now known as AT&T, Classmates.com, Amazon, Razorfish, Fox, Slingshot, and Sabre Airline Solutions. Robert studied studio art and telecommunications at Michigan State and user-centered design at the University of Washington. Without further ado, we present Robert Scrove. The man that everybody's been talking about for the past better part of the past year, the people that's bringing everybody together to talk about virtual design sprints and get people working together and collaborating. Thank you for joining us, Robert. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you all doing? Great, great. Um, you know, I think uh, Lee and I have been very fortunate to have some semblance of an active dialogue going on with you over the past uh, several months. Uh, it's been, you've been facilitating some really wonderful uh, events for people to get together and to work and share tools and lessons learned. Um, you know, one of the things that I picked up from your bio was uh, some of the early schooling that you did at Michigan State uh, around theater. Uh, I know you picked up a, a two degrees, one in, I believe it was journalism and also in studio work. Um, is, you know, what was your experience like before you went away to school and started formalizing your education? Uh, I know you also spent some time in Washington picking up some, uh, uh, you know, post uh, bachelor's certifications with regard to user-centered design. Um, you know, is there, can you tell us a little bit about Robert as a younger person and, you know, some of your experiences that led you down that path and your general curiosity as a young person? Yeah, as a young person, I was a mess. <laughs> Weren't we all? <laughs> uh, how young do you want to go? Do you want to go like uh, when I started remembering stuff, or what age range are you thinking about? You from birth. Uh, from birth. From, from birth. Please. From birth. Yeah. yeah. I remember it was warm, and then it got very cold very yeah. fast. Then I was in an isolated room, so it was very dark, and I couldn't remember much. Yeah. Uh, and then they were feeding me glop that I really didn't have any say in, so I really had to just eat what I was given. And then eventually I got around to wearing clothes and being able to walk on my own and all that fun stuff. Okay. Perfect. Oh, it's, it's funny because when you asked me that, I was thinking about uh, a story that we heard from Tom Chi, Lee and I, uh, last fall, or, yeah, last fall. Uh, and he was talking about being, growing up, and his parents were from overseas, and he was the first generation here and he had some language gaps early on and he was basically didn't know how to really communicate and that kind of pushed him forward down the path of getting an advanced engineering degree because 
he spent a large portion of his early um, kind of youth thinking very visually. And, uh, you know, uh, when you said like back to like five years old or when I was in diapers, you know, if you have a story like that, we would, uh, we would love to hear it. I'm truly fascinated by somebody like yourself that is, uh, is really looking to tap into some of the best and best parts of people and get them to work together. I mean, it's it's a different era in the sense that it was. I grew up in the in the in like the Greater Detroit area, so around Ypsilanti. So you had a ton of auto worker families, whether they're from Ford, General Motors. Uh, there was those are the big two. Chrysler was out there as well, and all of the areas around Ann Arbor and uh, forgetting the other cities, they were, they were populated with a bunch of folks that were working at the the auto places and other other industrial areas in Detroit. So there wasn't much to do per se beyond um, kind of getting involved with playing outdoors a ton. We had like cornfields everywhere. There was hide and seek to be had. Uh, you know, it. The only the earliest thing I can recall that I, where I did I was it, going very fast was I did a lot of artwork and a lot of tracing. So I would literally be able to look at a unicycle or a picture of one and get it pretty close. Um, and then from there it was. It, it, everyone thought that I had a pretty good artistic background, but I also excelled in math. So, but the, what people didn't know is I just memorized all the, all the tests. They ended out the same test every single time. And it was literally just, okay, we're going to see how, how, how good you are at aptitude in math. And everyone knew it was, a, it was a, a, it was a exercise in, in, in a little infutility. But even today I can still remember the first line of the, of the math because it's nine, six, 11, two, seven, seven, three, 12, four, one. And, and me and another woman named Sandy would, uh, we would basically race. And it was kind of one of those things where we'd get it done in under a minute. And everyone thought, they're amazing. It's like, no, we just have, we were just memorization. So, um, <laughs> we, figured it, we just figured it out. Yes, that was all it was. Uh, the, the talented programs that they had out there were very minuscule. So it was like a handful of us. Um, and that was around the time that PET computers were starting. And if you recall what those are, those are basically giant, just a giant monitor, a keyboard, and a tape player that would actually take in a lot of the information that you needed from the computer seat. Literally, you would press play like on a cassette. If anyone in your audience knows what cassettes are, those little things that had the tape, it would take the data from that. It would take anywhere from three to eight minutes to load even a simple game. And it was all in basic. So our fun was doing some of the lemonade stand and other programs they were writing for that, that computer to um, actually breaking it by using poke commands and figuring out what systems we could, what's something on the motherboard we could turn on, on and off yeah. and uh, having the school pay expensive fees to have somebody come and fix it. <laughs> so uh, that was, that was kind of my experience growing up more or less. Yeah. Did you have a, uh, you mentioned that you spent some time doing some work. Um, was there an active community where you grew up or did you have some friends in school that you guys would uh, share ideas or whether there were a couple of artists that you guys gravitated towards or respect the work of at a young age that you identified with? No, there's not, there was nothing like that at all. I mean, you have to understand, it's like we're, we're a bit of a bit in the boonies. So the, our entertainment during the holidays was like going to the apple fields or apple orchards where they would have like apple dunks, um, donuts, and there was just dirt roads everywhere. So there wasn't much. 
um, there would be like one park at the end of the road where we lived in Ivanhoe and everyone and anyone would go down there and it was an exercise in learning how to avoid getting beat up or uh, basically getting <laughs> basketball or playing or playing baseball and just doing pickup games. So you had the, the bullies and the, the, the burnouts that would basically hang out there and potentially you had to scatter if they came all the way to people in your age range where they would just play until it got dark and then you went home. So that was essentially what life was back then until I think around the time that uh, in that arena where rap started to become big and popular. Like we adopted a lot of what's coming out of the East Coast in Detroit uh, and that would come into the suburbs. So it was weird. You had a mix of rap and you had heavy metal. So you had the beginnings of Metallica and Iron Maiden playing with different people. And then you have Run DMC and the Fat Boys. So it would be this, this, depending on who showed up, there would be, it's just like in the movies, being out this huge cassette or this huge player with like 18 batteries filled in. They would pop that thing down and play basketball. And then you would have the guys that would drive like the muscle cars coming in, playing uh, nothing but like Rat and Van Halen and all this stuff. So it was, it was literally like a clash of cultures. But it was fun to watch um, and also fun to kind of navigate that at the same time. Yeah. You know, can, I, can I, let me, uh, let me just uh, break in here real quick. Uh, speaking of the word break. So Robert, can you, are you willing to tell us if you participated in, in any break dancing? No, I wasn't any good at it. Okay. Um, I, I think maybe I, maybe I had some, some uh, pants that had zippers in them. I, I took part in that cultural thing, but, uh, I don't think I ever did. I, I know my friends were trying it out, but my big thing was uh, at the time was sledding because there was snow and ice all the time in Michigan. So getting an inner tube or like uh, just finding a hill or something like that, that was cool because it was just, it was easy. It was just finding someplace to basically slide down and not hit a road. Um, that was essentially it. So yeah. That sounds like a, a young Lee Duncan, frankly. Yeah, I mean, the great thing is, is that if you could, it, there, people would, would have toboggans and uh, like all that stuff, trying to make it like really official. But really all you needed was like a $2 like uh, Kmart plastic sled. And those things would break under the, 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 the impact of jumping on it and like the cold weather. And there would be like, so you know, your, your average big hill of snow that would be left over would be a combination of a bunch of traction and just littered plastic with all sorts of crap that went everywhere. And in a way, you had to be like Indiana Jones and navigate away from all of it so that you wouldn't come home with like a rip in your clothing or you wouldn't get hurt because you headbutted somebody else. Um, yeah, so that was, that was fun stuff. It's kind of weird thinking that my background was this chaotic and then I'm ending up uh, doing stuff with virtual design sprints. So I'm like, there is yeah. no causation. There was no way I was eight years old. It's like, someday I'm going to lead a lot of people all over the world and do things that in a process would be fantastic. That, that never, no, that... Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because before you came on and before we started, Lee and I were kind of uh, discussing some of the questions that we had for you. And, you know, it's interesting from your bio to know that you gave it a hand. You gave um, radio broadcast a hand out, out of college. And then you started looking very actively at like ads and advertising and thinking about how I would, I would assume how different organizations and people were getting their message out. And then along the way, you know, it seems like you may have dabbled a little bit in theater and arts and what mm -hmm. little time I've spent in that, it, it 
really, at least for me at a young age, was really the first introduction that I had to working with people, having a shared common goal and um, practicing and honing your skills and tapping into the strengths of people and different people wearing different hats. And then at the end of it, having a great success or not, you know, um, it's interesting that you, you say there's no uh, kind of causality or there maybe there's no continuity, but as I'm reading through your bio, it seems like very fascinating story, uh, especially after your college years and then into your time at Washington. Yeah. Uh, so when, when did you first hear about computer human interaction and design? When did your, you know, when did you open up to that? I think probably when I was in Seattle. I, I, I probably had glimpses of what I was doing back when I was in Colorado, but I think as a concept, it when I was in that culture, that's probably where it became more acute because that's when that that's when I started getting involved with Usability Professionals Association, who had a little bit of a squabble with uh, with with the Sinkai community. There was this there was this weird kind of geeky territorial thing going on where. I opened up a, um, a chapter uh, from the UPA out there and I would get calls from the SIGCHI chapter and the uh, AIGA chapter saying, hey, uh, I've been noticing you've been really active. Uh, you, are you planning on like trying to get my members and, and bring them over? And I just, I just met the guy and it, it was like, no, I just want to find other people of like mind to kind of figure out what I, what I like about the space and explore it. Um, so it was, it was really through a necessity of trying to figure out if, if what I was thinking about with user experience and information architecture, whether people knew about it and knowing that I had uh, a bent towards organizing communities and organizing people that I just basically leveraged that to see what I can do. So if you, you, Dave, you were talking about a common theme throughout my life and probably the thing that that is consistent to this day is organizing people. It's, it's been this weird thing, whether it's been, um, uh, starting a chapter to starting three companies in three different eras to uh, to gaming communities where I was a professional gamer at one point and then use, utilizing that to work with the boys and girls club to take people who are addicted to video games and bring them out of that element to concentrate more on their studies and their families to doing not a lot of nonprofits work uh, in Washington as well as in what I was doing DJing in Detroit and in Lansing um, yeah, I've always kind of had that as a theme throughout throughout my professional career. Yeah. And I know in one of your early um, lead roles uh, coming out of your years in Seattle, I think it may have been with Razorfish or maybe shortly before that, you talked about, um, you know, you, or I saw some somewhere that you may have had, um, your role might have entailed like, ensuring that C-level executives and people kind of were getting their arms or seeing some of the prototypes that your your team and the people that you were working with and even like uh, implementing the concept of a prototype to some of these organizations and using that as a tool to gain alignment. It's It seems like even back then, it that was pretty cutting edge stuff. I mean, it's, uh, you know, not, not to date either of us or any of us, but I can't remember organizations really thinking that way. You were definitely probably in the cutting edge for doing stuff like that. Razorfish at the time was doing things where we were finding like-minded people that, that thought about design in organizations like Microsoft and uh, Target and other places. 
So we, we kind of had these pockets of influence within those organizations because they also saw the future around where things were going from a technical perspective. And granted, this is before the 2018, the 2008 crash. This yeah. before everything kind of went south. And there was so much of an abundance of perceived um, uh, like uh, opportunity that it really fostered a lot of people that kind of knew half of it and half that didn't, but all of us kind of working at breakneck speed to kind of do these uh, really interesting work. I mean, at the time it was also Amazon, which was uh, just starting to do a venture foray into digital realm and it was constantly iterating and changing. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting exercise or a discussion around culture, especially work culture, because there, we want to talk about an era where people were being ground into dirt and to just ash by the amount of work that they were given. You can look no further than the tech giants because back then there was no resemblance or our association between a healthy balance of where people wanted to go with their professional career and their, their personal lives versus uh, meeting the, the expectations of, of the, their department or their, their, their company. And, um, it was, it was, that was when it dawned on me really early that you have to try to strike a fine balance between what people are asking for and what you can reasonably do. And it, it's, it was a just, it was a world of constant learning. It was probably the one where I got more up to speed in user experience and in information architecture and, and research and analytics and how all of them tied back into business, business, um, uh, business goals and what people were trying to achieve from a from a number standpoint, and really understanding how in depth it was, and that probably was was ex- extremely important to get my head out of being dogmatic about UX, which I find a lot of designers tend to do. Like they think that's the end all be all. What needs to they need to concentrate on as designers when it could be so much further from the truth. And I think there's a, there with the 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 rise of the emphasis of products and actually performance and having analytics to back that out. I think we, I think we've kind of turned a corner last year around that. And I think it's becoming more and more prevalent around like how design impacts business results. Um, but yeah. it, even, even, even in the early two thousands, it was, it was there. It just wasn't as a thing. It was, was just wasn't as spoken about. Um, I, I had a question um, regarding the transition to, so you touched on a chord about, you want to talk about um, the epitome of effectively of working people to the bone, the tech giants, and you did cover an experience that you had with Amazon. Um, moving out of the uh, Razorfish experience and into your work at Fox uh, Media, uh, you know, you, you had a pretty long stint um, as a startup and consultancy owner, um, with some pretty impressive clients, you know, how do you transition out of a lead role within an organization? You know, was there, was there a catalyst or was there an experience that happened and you thought, you know what, I, maybe I can work a little bit differently. Um, was there something that inspired you, uh, following those experiences to go out on your own? I just had a lot of people asking me for work. And that really all it was all it was. I mean, I I, had, I was leading two teams in two different cities, uh, and I had I had the, the the old context I had in the agency world. We're going, um, we're really short of talent, and we need someone to get this done ahead of time. Or we just had somebody quit, 
and we have, we're on the line to deliver this thing for this eight, for this uh, Fortune 10 client, or I am, I am, we have just signed this uh, financial contract with, say, Fidelity or some other com company and said, we don't know how we're going to get it done because the talent we have in-house is not going to work. Do you, do you, I, I mean, we, we're paying top dollar to try to find you contract work. And I knew how to do 80% of it. And I knew I could do it much faster than the person I was going to refer it to. So I made a value judgment at the time when I went to Dallas and said, okay, I'll be working with Fox Sports in their, their division. Do I want to continue on this space or do I want to learn something new and uh, see if I can make this sustainable for a couple, two, three, four years and start putting some work around my, my own personal brand? So I made the leap. Uh, funny enough, I had a ton of work the first year. Then when my, my wife got pregnant with our first kid, um, I had, I took leave for three months to make sure that that transition worked. And that <laughs> was funny enough when I took the break, all of a sudden people found the, the right people for what they needed. And I had to kind of do a reset and do it again. Um, but yeah, the, the, it wasn't so much a, a it wasn't so much my person wanting to go strike out on my own and saying, I, I, I'll start my own shop. It was just looking at the opportunity and what people were kind of presenting and going, you know what? I'd be a dummy to not take advantage of this because there's only going to be so long I can work as a full-time person uh, and, and not try to capture what, what I, this opportunity I have, which is something that stuck with me even to this day. And thus like taking advantage of the situation, knowing that it's not going to stay forever. Like right now, this, this era that we live in in terms of social media, this is going to go away. Instagram is not going to exist in five years. And if it does, it's going to be a completely different form. Yeah. Facebook is actually the same as it is today. It's, a, it's, it's predominant, but so is MySpace. It's the, MySpace is still around, but what is it in terms of a cultural relevance to what people are today? It's yeah. always going to change. And, and I recognize more than anybody with, the, with where I've been and where I'm going with this, that I have to try to do as much as I can humanly can to, as they say, like squeeze the juice out of what I have in terms of like the opportunity now, because 20 years from now, I'm going to move slower, think slower. I'm going to be like wanting to just kind of relax. I'll be probably closer to 70, 75. I'll still work, but I just won't have the opportunity I do today. So I think, I think having the, the notion that uh, you kind of spread while the iron is hot and really try to get as much out of it as you can when it's there, it, it's changed my thinking from defense to offense. And so these days, because it seems like I'm so active with the virtual sprint or I'm doing stuff with a referral network, or I'm also always on social media promoting other people I know, it's purposeful. It's not just doing it for the sake of doing it. It's, we have to take advantage of what we've got right now because it's not going to be around. It's going to come in a different form. We just have to think about that next form when it's going to happen. Let me ask a question in regards to um, uh, the difference between the global virtual design sprint 1.0 and 2.0. So what are some of the key differences between, between doing the first one and then, and the recent one with so many sprinters scale, uh, that's that, that and a tweak in, in how process works. So when you're closer to each sprint, you take on a different role in November, it was curating and guiding and doing a lot more, uh, personalization of the service I can provide as an organizer. When you take it from 50 people to 300 people, you now you're managing um, you're managing expectations in a different way. 
And you are going to just going to have to assume that then no matter what happens, you're going to have some fallout. There are going to be some people that say, you know, this doesn't work for me. This is terrible. And you just have to be accountable to that end result because that's, that's your role as an organizer. But this time around, I wanted to do it on a larger scale and really, uh, instead of just when we do a full month, because I want to see if the concept or the hypothesis we had in November was going to be realistic in a, in a, in a macro and what dynamics were going to happen out of that. What am I going to learn by doing this? Right? Because let's say that the next iteration of this is not necessarily bigger is better, but it's quality matters or learning by doing is the central theme to this. Then I want to do something in between the, the, the pilot and what I'm doing now and condense it down and start figuring out if a, I want to make a living from it or, or see about that. B, if I can provide a better experience than I did this time around by focusing on a particular dimension of this, that seems to have promise like working with charities or um, like finding gainful employment for some of those folks that are coming here. So it's, it's like a talent a checker to see how they measure up in terms of like what other people perceive of them. And, and, and third, seeing if there's an ability to produce a referral network underneath so that if you have a body of work from this experience where other people would vouch for you and say that this person really knows their chops for facilitation, user experience development, and everything else, I can provide the network for that that's diametrically different from what people are experiencing today. And I can use that as a, as a way of connecting with a lot of other professionals in other industries and seeing if there's a, there's a viable model for uh, you know, employment that's different from what we have. It's really fascinating and intriguing. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bold idea, but why the hell not? If I have the skills and the strengths that, that would align with that possibility, and I'm humble enough to accept the fact that I could fail, which trust me, you're around for as long as I have for 49 years. You have a, your litany of failures on, on multiple fronts is as long as the, as, as the day and the night. Um, I'm really here to try to learn as much as possible and to try to really see if I can make it work. Because if it hits, if I get it right, or if I'm successful, then everyone's going to be successful. I can provide employment for that guy down in the Philippines that's really, really trying to get his business going for design sprints and he's business minded. He can use the, the extended service. If, if it, if it if affords him a better lifestyle from a professional standpoint, um, makes his, his business successful, then I, I would say I'm chuffed. I feel, I, I've, I would feel very uh, happy for that end result. If somebody coming out of college, that's a user researcher that is trying to find their way between neurosciences and going into UX and being able to provide an outlet for them to try out something new or to try an experience or to have them actually do it beyond what they read and what they consume on an information standpoint and apply it to an actual practice, apply it to an actual problem. And it cognitively moves them to a different thinking, to a different place in terms of, oh, now that I've done that, I can go to a, to a different place and try this. Then I feel like I made a difference. Then it becomes worthwhile. And all three of those things I mentioned before, I think are something that I'm continuing on with because I think it does make that difference. You mentioned that uh, social media five years down the road would go away. Yes. Uh, and one might say that because of the way the tools and the application of social media is kind of, um, it's watered down the human experience that it was originally intended to. How have you managed when you take a construct like a virtual design sprint, 
how have you managed to get such positive feedback and response from all the participants uh, when when it's a remote setting? Is it you know what are some of the tools or what are some of the things that you've evidenced that are really you know driving the, the success of the exercises? I think the element of camaraderie that's that's uh, persistent in physical sprints is also there in virtual sprints. But what's the advantage I see also in virtual sprints is that mass or the amount of people that you throw at a problem actually doesn't matter. You can have up to, right now we're testing it where we've had up to, to 12 or 13 people on a particular team. And what it's actually done is, is uh, it's, it's helped collaboration in a way where pe more people are willing to get put more time into it. Whereas originally I thought I just needed five or six and it didn't, it didn't really work out as much. Uh, uh, I, I think it's, it's the idea that people are coming to this event with the best of intentions and they want to help and they, they'd like to be perceived as being helpful or, or, or at least contributing. So once you get past like the, the, the notion of who everybody is and meeting them, um, you want to put your best foot forward for other people that you don't know and you want to showcase what you can do. And, and I think that's, that's been evident time and time again that, that if it, it, after day one will be the, is usually the litmus test. If people don't want to do it and they don't feel an association with people that are there on the call and they are much more oriented towards either in-person experiences or uh, just not feeling the vibe, then they, they make a, an exit and they either do it, they either declare it, they tell you, or they just don't come back. And um, that's, happened, that's happened on all teams, really. Do you find there are differentiated skills uh, between a virtual design sprint and doing a design sprint in person? Are there differentiated and important key skills? That in terms of, of all the roles or a specific role? To make a virtual design sprint successful as opposed to making a in-person design sprint successful. Are there differentiated skills? Is there some personality that seems to be more, more uh, helpful um, in the virtual domain? Is there anything different as far as developing future skills for virtual design sprints as compared to the skill set for in-person design sprints? The two things, that, well, the one thing that it definitely reinforces is the need to over-communicate and not assume that what you say in Slack is going to be picked up in a Zoom call and vice versa, especially when you're a facilitator. Um, it, also, it also opens the door that you normally wouldn't have to working on a problem on your own time. Whereas in a, in a physical sprint, you're kind of in the room and you're expecting to get something done by a certain day. Mm -hmm. This, the, I get the feeling that, that a virtual sprint can actually effectively spread out the five day process and still work. Mm -hmm. So you could potentially have an a three weeks, a three week sprint that's virtual where you have a lot of exploration of the problem space, interviews, um, onsite visits, uh, research that's done, at the end of the week, kind of getting together and problem framing and figuring out and getting alignment, you execute on the sprint, but the sprint doesn't go in a full week. It actually is something that cascades into uh, another week. And it's, it really is more manageable in terms of the schedule. Um, so the th to answer your question, Lee, the first is communication. And the second is, is more around huh, getting real about what your ability is and what you actually bring to the table because it's going to be really apparent to everyone else if you have what it takes versus um, where you're, you're missing the mark. And by that I mean is that if you're with senior people and they see what you do and how you act and what you, what you produce, 
it's going to be a much better indicator of talent and 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 uh, and potential than you would if you were just reading a resume, looking at a dribble account, or anything else where you're 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 just kind of looking at artifacts of the past. I, I think this platform really puts into perspective and puts on display how a person acts, coordinates, communicates, and executes on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. And it, it's challenging. Not many people are used to this, but you, it, you get exposed if you don't know what you're talking about. And I think even with this last one that we just talked about with the, when we did a trial run of the, of the prototype, the, the person that was asking me questions clearly didn't know user research. The person that did the prototype Probably not all that great with design, but no matter what my personal judgment is, when I, we went through the motions, they were extremely grateful. They really liked it. They, 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 they experienced it. It was different from all their preconceptions of what was there. And I can sense that there was a sense of like, I want to try more of this. Yeah. I want to do a little bit more of this. I want to, I want, should I redo everything? You know, like on the design, I was telling, no, just leave it as is. You're learning. Um, but communication and uh, the, the real of doing the execution, the learning by doing, those are the two things predominantly that you pick up in a virtual sprint that while you could get in a physical sprint, they are ac- accentuated in this environment. Mm-hmm. So, for what I heard you say there, it basically takes a village and uh, takes a lot of energy to run, to run a sprint at this mm-hmm. scale. Who are some of the partners or people or anyone you want to give a shout out to that has helped you along the way. Um, We're going to double the size of this podcast, guys, if we do that, because there's, <laughs> I, I am really, I am wholly dependent on the, the, the gratitude, or the, I'm wholly dependent on the, the, the contributions and the, uh, the time that people give this thing. And really, I'm, I'm more of a figurehead than I am anything else. So let's start with the folks that are running this podcast, the both of you. And I don't mean it as, a, as an apropos kind of like situational, like I'm going to make you guys feel better. Let's be real. Lee, you were somebody that took a challenge that was related to a charity, and you not only made that happen, but you rode that thing for months, seeing where it could go, corresponding with the charity, like talking about an IBM, giving it life to the point where it reached a conclusion that no, no one would have thought it was going to. You're one of the people that early on in the pilot made uh, such a meaningful contribution and kept it going to the point where it, it really mattered to other people. And I think that in and of itself speaks to the promise of what this could be. Dave, come on now. How many times have you basically come together to other teams and offered up without um, expectation your perspective, your insight, your time, your ability to be able to show perspective, really be able to help people along, that giving uh, nature that you have? It may not necessarily be about achievement-driven uh, no, no, uh, or like uh, notoriety in terms of where people go with things, but it's been your your involvement in different levels where you've had time in these in both the pilot and this event that have made all the difference for several people that have contributed their time to this. So both of you, in, historically, have, have played a role in this that speaks to the narrative of why this event works out so well. Now, beyond the people that are a part of this podcast, um, I'm going to name off a handful of people, and by no means does it mean that they're a cut of grade above and beyond everyone else that's contributed their time. But I will say folks like um, like Sandy Lamb comes to mind, who is just starting out with facilitation, but has all the right instincts and the skills to go in different places. And I've been noticing that the encouragement and the advice and the, and the guidance that 
different people as well as myself have given her, she's building upon that and actually like multiplying that. And that's, that's wonderful to see because someone who is in that space is learning and growing at a fantastic rate that's really going to propel them into some, some place. Um, I just got off a call where I was with Natasha Wainwright, someone who's, who, uh, who's, very, who's, who's very good at kind of seeing the conversation that's going on in the, in the room and basically making some very, uh, very defined statements and, and, and uh, observations that move a conversation forward in a particular way. Um, I mean, I could bring up the Excel spreadsheet of 300 people, but um, there's, um, there's Amira Rob, who I'm, I'm a big fan of, who early on in the pilot did not one, but two design sprints at the same time, is now very active in Istanbul doing meetups. Is I think he's gonna be moving to the States, but he's somebody that's, that has all the makings of an influencer, all the makings of someone that you know based on who he is and his point of view and how he approaches design sprints. Um, there's Sabrina Gorich out of Stuttgart, Germany, who is awesome. It was, yeah. I mean, I say the name and it elicits a reaction, right? She's just, she's, she started out as like, well, I have this design studio with now like, yeah, I have a design studio and I'm doing all of this. She's uh, very involved with uh, the Kampala, uh, Uganda, the computer development program that they're doing and they're collaborating with. Uh, she's very active in multiple fronts, both, both locally and in the design sprint realm. Um, yeah, so that that's just that's just off the top of my head. But if I we we stay here, I know I can I can name off like uh, a, uh like Brian uh, Brian Lung from Lucky Cookie Lab. Uh, there's uh, Abel Manangas uh, that I mentioned before, um, and I and I know I re I'm naming people from the pilot. There's Richard Butler from AT and T. I mean, there it's just you you just can't be you just can't come to this and think of those people without having a level of gratitude about what they've been giving freely to this thing and just seeing where it goes and hopefully taking from this and, and making something of their own that they can take and going in a different direction. Leah Ripken. Um, yeah, I, 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 I would take an hour just basically go through everyone that I, that I had an impression of and I think that's going to go places. And then mural too, have they been, they've been oh, yeah. So yeah, let's not forget. The, the underpinning of the whiteboard software that we've been using the entire time, Mural, and all the folks here, Jim Kalbach, uh, Mark Tippin, uh, uh, Amelia El Elstrom, who's been instrumental in making all of this happen, whether it's been the webinar or the correspondence and everything else, uh, uh, David Chin, um, all the guys at Mural have been immensely supportive. I think, I, I think there's gonna be more opportunity for us to work together in the future and really make this like a solid kind of partnership because um, we have all the underpinnings for this. Uh, Aging and Smart has been in the background in terms of kind of uh, collaborating and discussing and, 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 you know, being a sounding off board for basically like talking about what the importance of this is. Um, there's, yeah, so the, those are probably the two that, that, that come to mind. Um, there's probably more. And, uh, and hopefully if, if they listen to this podcast, they're not going to go, yeah, I listened to that, but you know, you forgot about mental so, but yeah, Mural and Agent Smart have been two that come to mind. What about at home? Given the schedule that you keep during these exercises, I would imagine that it takes a, I had a conversation with my partner today and I was telling her, uh, you know, I had a really stressful day ahead of me today. And I said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, thank you for being that constant positive force behind me, mm -hmm. me get up and making sure that I'm able to get out the door and I, don't forget anything and I, you know, I'm fed and I'm, I'm nourished and I'm, I'm, I'm 
given fuel to start the day and go out there and kind of grind away. Well, yeah, it, it goes without saying that my wife is pretty much like the, the foundation for all of this. Yeah. So I try to be as supportive as I can in many different aspects. And that doesn't mean I fall short. It just means that I don't complain. Yeah. I do not. Maybe I'll make the comment that I'm tired, but the entire past two or three weeks where I've been sleep deprived, that's my doing. That's my, that, that's my choice. And what I'm, I'm on the hook for is raising a kid, supporting the in-laws, making sure that the house runs smoothly, that, uh, that I contribute to the household, all of those things that go into it, like a complex relationship that we have. She works full time as well. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really, I wouldn't be able to do this if, if there was, there wasn't that uh, mechanism in play, there wasn't that relationship in play. So yeah, she's, she's very much uh, attributed to this, this, the success of what I'm doing. Well, I know we're uh, close to our time that we have allocated with you. Uh, some of the feedback that I received on you over the years and when you talked uh, and you highlighted what you saw as our participation in the previous events, you know, I, I'm speaking for myself and maybe Lee as well, but it's easy to work and collaborate with somebody like yourself. Right? People were saying and posting that, you know, Robert, um, no matter how stressful the situation is, he was always handling it, um, you know, a calm presence that's continued to guide people through it. And I've witnessed that um, in both events that I've participated with you, and even in the interim, uh, I truly appreciate all the guidance and support. And um, when I say guidance, I mean, who else offers their calendar up for regular cash-ups whenever we want to? to talk about anything that I choose to. Um, thank you very much for making yourself available to me. Um, you definitely have changed the way I've been thinking and working over the past year. Um, and I look forward to, to, you know, thinking and staying in front of things and working with you and working with Lee. Very inspiring um, individual. I wish we had more time to talk with you and to learn some more about the different interesting community uh, groups that you're involved with, like the Bengali uh, Association there, I guess, in in, in, in around Dallas. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very fascinating, man. Where, where can people that want to find out more about you, where can they find you or some of your content? The easiest place to, to go is LinkedIn right now, simply because that's going to be the place where I'm going to be putting a lot of articles around this event that just happened. I tend to post there a lot there the, of content that's business related. Um, you can do a search for me on, on Instagram. Uh, you can use, usually go to Dallas underscore sprints and that's the business side of it. Or if you want to delve into who I am, there's, I think it's Spiderbird 2018. Spiderbird being a reference to when I was a rock climber. Um, that, that probably has all the family oriented stuff if you're curious about that. But I would say LinkedIn is probably your best bet in terms of professional uh, material and what's gonna come out. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I would say that that's that's probably your 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 go-to place. Are there uh, are there any key dates coming up for announcements? Anything you'll be announcing or something that's uh, that's new or fresh in your mind? <laughs> I'm going to announce that I'm going to go into hibernation next week and I'll wake up for a while. <laughs> uh, no, not not offhand. Um, I'm really going to take about a, a, a almost a full month to set up shop and because I took it down for a while in terms of like. Uh, my actual business and putting that back up with some new offerings. 
So I'll be doing that through the month of May, uh, probably doing circling back with some of the people that I connected with through this event and talk about opportunities that have come up, uh, whether they're uh, pilot programs for universities to uh, business ventures and seeing where those go. So um, no announcements to mention. I would just say that you've got a couple of things on the calendar that are coming up that are design sprint centric that uh, that if you're in local to Austin, I think it's um, uh, Voltage Control is having their their conference. I, I forget what it's called, but they're they're going to be ha- that's coming coming up pretty soon. Uh, Steph Crushan uh, just had they announced his uh, getaway in, in Switzerland, and maybe we can put it in the show notes for people that that want to uh, to check those out. Um, but there's a lot of design sprint centric events that are that are happening in the next couple months that I'd rather promote than anything that I'm doing because I'm going to need some time to just look back objectively at what's happened in, in April and make sense of it and figure out which direction I want to go. Great. Well, Robert, I thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Uh, I hope you have a great holiday weekend and uh, I hope you get some sleep and we, we look forward to the weeks to come and uh, we hope that you have a great uh, sabbatical, short sabbatical. And um, like I said, we can't wait to hear what's next and some of these dates and some of the upcoming milestones and things that you'll be sharing with the rest of the world. I'm sure it'll be just as inspiring as the uh, the virtual design sprint work that you've been doing over the past year. Uh, thank you very much. You're absolutely welcome. It's going to be fun to do it. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak on your podcast and have a discussion with both of you. Um, feel free to reach out anytime if you want to do any follow-up and, uh, you know, you enjoy your holiday weekend as well. Thanks. On behalf of the Experiences of Insight team, we'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. We hope that it was value-added and that you continue to check out our content. Have a nice day.